الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار رحماء بينهم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم وأقسموا بالله جهد أيمانهم لئن جاءتهم آية ليؤمنن بها قل إنما الآيات عند الله وما يشعركم أنها إذا جاءت لا يؤمنون ولو ولو أننا نزلنا إليهم الملائكة وكلمهم الموتى 
وَحَشَرْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ قُبُلًا مَا كَانُوا لِيُؤْمِنُوا إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهِ وَلَكِنَّ أَكْثَرَهُمْ يَجْهَلُونَ Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims, I'd like to spend the next several minutes in explaining a very simple point. This point, of course, has to do with the matter of Allah's authority. And on this day of taqwa, it is important for us to try to focus as much as we can on this central theme of Allah's final dispensation to mankind. These ayat that were just quoted are the 109th and the 111th ayat from Surah Al-An'am. They are related to some of the mushriks or perhaps the more powerful of the mushriks that were around Allah's Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam these mushriks were demanding that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam produce miracles as a proof of his prophethood and of the ayat that were coming down to him from heaven Now this was not the first time that such a demand was made of Allah's prophets. Throughout the history of Bani Israel, they demanded such miracles from their prophets. And when their prophets would not deliver these miracles to them on their time schedule as opposed to Allah's time schedule, they would mock and deride these prophets. And so it is definitely not out of the realm of possibility that these remnants of Bani Israel in the Arabian Peninsula were egging on these mushriks to put pressure on the final prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to validate the message that he was delivering to the people by the force of miracles. And so let us try to put these ayat into context. Just to briefly translate the meaning of these ayat so that you can keep them in mind as we go forward. 
The first of these ayat is rendered as follows. Now they swear by Allah with their most solemn oaths that if the Prophet were to show them a miracle, then they would definitely commit to Allah. Say to them that all miracles are within the power of Allah alone. And for all you know, even if you were to show them one, they would still not make a firm commitment to Allah. And in the second of these ayat, again this is the 111th ayah in Surah Al-An'am. And if we were to send them, if we were to send down upon them angels so that they could see them, and if we were to bring the dead back to life so that they could speak to them. And if we were to assemble everything of which they demanded in front of them face to face. Then they would still not commit themselves to Allah except by Allah's permission. But in this most of them are ignorant. So now with these meanings in mind, let us proceed to the points that need to be made today. So at the time of Allah's Messenger, they came to Him demanding that in order for them to confirm their faith in Him, that he would have to produce these extraordinary supernatural physical events in nature such as the parting of the sea or, or giving sight back to the blind or healing the leper or things of this nature. And onto their demands they further added some conditions. That they would only relinquish their privileged status in society and they would only retreat from an immoral form of governance if and only if Allah was to support His Prophet by showing them all of these miracles. And of course in this demand these mushriks were not alone. There were quite a few weak-minded Muslims at the time who themselves thought that if a miracle or two appeared here or there, well, it would be good for the cause. And so there was a social dynamic in place. In a sense, there was a social critical mass, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, that were demanding this kind of physical proof of not only prophethood, but of these ayat which were descending from heaven. They were not comfortable, and at least the Muslims ought to be comfortable. But they were not comfortable in applying their intelligence 
and their mental capacities to these ayat which are coming down from heaven. Islamic historical sources indicate that in particular there were five people who were expressing a public doubt about the ayat of the Qur'an and thereby by extension to the prophethood of Muhammad. And just for your information, uh, here are the names of these five people. Wa'il As-Sahmi, Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira Al-Makhzumi, Al-Asi ibn Al-Aswad, Al-Aswad ibn Al-Muttalib, and Al-Harith ibn Al-Hanzala. They all came to the Prophet together. And they, and they said to him that we want you to produce some angels that are going to come and testify to your prophethood. And we want you to bring the dead back to life so that we can question them about these ayat that you claim to be, that you claim are coming from heaven. And we want you to bring the entire Qur'an in book form and present it to us. And you, we want you to bring Allah Himself down so that we can see Him. And if you are truthful about what you say, we want you to build us a staircase from where we are all the way up into heaven so that we can ascend this staircase and see God for ourselves. And so in response to these demands, these ayat were revealed. And so there are some important things to note about this dynamic in the way that it was transpiring at the time of Allah's Prophet. For we, ha for we need to understand that these ayat and the mentorship of Allah's Messenger is not locked in time. These ayat are progenitors. They are a foundational basis for the way that all societies in all times function. And so when we are reviewing this history, in the mode of trying to understand these ayat a little bit better. We ought to try to take that history and transplant it in the modern day and see if the people in power are demanding the same kind of supernatural miracles from those who claim to be following in the footsteps of prophets. But we're going to spell out that aspect in just a few minutes. 
So let us take note of some of these important things around this particular dynamic. First of all, the truth requires no validation. It requires no materialistic validation. It requires no supernatural miracles for you to understand that what is being revealed is true and just and honest. All you have to do to understand that is to commit your mind and your emotions to it. In a sense, the truth is self-validated. It has a profound and overwhelming impact on humanity. And this cannot be denied. Second, there are two important competing attitudes taking place here. The first is the mushrik's attitude of demanding miracles. These ayat tell us that they have no intention of being compliant or conformant with Allah. And thus their demand for an unlimited set of miracles to prove the prophethood of Muhammad or to prove these ayat are just a set of delaying tactics. But the more important attitude is the attitude of Muslims. There appears to be an apprehension on the part of Muslims to acknowledge the reality not only in their hearts but in what they do to acknowledge the reality that there are going to be some people on earth that are never, ever, ever going to comply with the guidance from Allah. Now let us be truthful. We Muslims have a problem with coming to terms with this ayah. Because whenever those people in power despite their avowed direction of never complying with Allah. Whenever they demand from us to prove this or that, instead, instead of attending to Allah's commands, we'll waste years, perhaps generations, trying to prove to them something that they never wanted proof for to begin with. Our job is to attend to Allah's program, to Allah's commands and not their demands. The third point to be understood here is the notion of miracle. The word for miracle and the word for a verse of the Qur'an is exactly the same. Ayah. قُلْ إِنَّمَا الْآيَاتُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ Now first of all the meaning of ayah in a literal sense is just demonstration or illustration. And by demonstration, I don't mean people going out and protesting a particular issue. Uh, what I mean is the following. 
Say that I were to describe to you the engine of an automobile. That it has pistons and that it has uh, it has fuel and that it has all of these different components that work together in order to convert chemical energy into mechanical energy. And I could go on and describe this to you for days and you probably still wouldn't get a good idea of what an engine is. But if I were to bring one to you and if I were to turn it on and I were to show you how it works, this is the kind of demonstration that I'm talking about. So when you refer to the ayat of the Qur'an, you are talking about demonstrating, or Allah is talking about demonstrating an aspect of His capacity or His power. And when you're talking about a miracle, which is also called an ayah in the Qur'anic language, you're talking about Allah demonstrating His power presence in the world or His power over nature in another way. So the ayat of the Qur'an are demonstrations of Allah's power and the ayat of miracles are demonstrations of Allah's power. However, there is a pre-Islamic notion of ayat and then there is a post-Islamic notion or appraisal of ayat. And the pre-Islamic notion of ayat or miracles, there were people who demanded that their prophet produce these supernatural, physical, something beyond the laws of nature type of miracles. And the prophets did that. But with the advent of Muhammad alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam and with the advent of Iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq with the advent of qum fa'anzir there's a new cultural, historical and social dynamic that took place. That from this point forward the proof of Allah's ayat would not come in the form of physical miracles, but they would come in the form of a social transformation of society. And if along the way miracles were needed to help that process along by the commitment and the sacrifice and the struggle of those in the cause of Allah, then this is where miracles would take place. And if we look at the world around us today and we were to dream or to imagine a just and honorable and in integrated non-racist society, we would say that that transformation from here to there is a miracle. In fact, some of us could not even imagine that such a thing could take place. But at the time of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it did take place. That miracle took place. Another important thing to note 
with regard to these ayat is that there are two kinds of people. There are those people who really and truly and sincerely want to find Allah. And anyone from the bottom of his heart who wants to find Allah, he will find Him. And then he will commit to Him with his emotions and his thoughts and his deeds. But conversely, there are those who want to do anything to avoid Allah. Anything on earth they'll do to avoid Allah. There is nothing that you can show them. There is nothing that you can prove to them that will make them commit to the guidance that comes from Allah. And in our world today, such a label can be applied to presidents and princes and kings and general secretaries and what have you. The most important point to be made about these ayat, perhaps the most important one, is that people who are looking for miracles are not looking for Allah. People who are looking for a materialistic proof of the truth are not looking for Allah. They want Allah to approach them, but they don't want to approach Allah. They want to measure Allah's performance, but they don't want Allah to measure their performance. These are the people who are asking for miracles. And Allah has a response for them. قُلْ إِنَّمَا الْآيَاتُ اللَّهِ Say to them, that all miracles are within the power of Allah alone. And they happen on His time, not on your time. And so with all this in mind, let's fast forward to today. Is the attitude of those who commit to Allah and what's demanded of them and is the attitude of those who are against them, is it the same today as it was back then? Has human nature changed that drastically in 1400 years that the ayat of the Qur'an don't apply today? Certainly in today's world there are no more prophets. And the ayat are not coming down fresh from on high. And so the kind of miracles that people used to ask for in the past to bring the dead back to life or to bring angels down to earth or to show you Allah or any of those things or the physical miracles like parting the sea or uh, an inferno in front of Pharaoh's army or what have you. Certainly nobody's asking for those kinds of miracles. But when someone in the Islamic movement stands up and he says publicly that I want to live in a society that is governed by the rule and the command of Allah, that I want to live in a society that is modeled upon the example of Allah's last prophet, 
then he is bombarded with a barrage. What kind of economic system are you going to have? What kind of political representation do you expect to have in that society? What about education? What about jobs? How are you going to control domestic terrorism? What about your finance? What kind of transportation system are you going to have? What kind of foreign policy are you going to have? And all these people who are asking these types of questions from the Muslims, whether you believe it or not, these happen to be the people in power. And all of the academics and the intellectuals that support the people in power. Before they give the poor people some kind of a license to rule themselves as if we need that license from them, we have to put some kind of a working model of a functioning project in their lap, on their desk, for them to approve. Aren't they asking for a miracle? When was the last time that one person or a few people produced such a working model of an entire society and put it on somebody's desk? Did that even happen with the Qur'an? The Qur'an was revealed in 23 years. As the needs of the, of the society demanded the ayat, the ayat descended. Solve problems for the people. And so far as the people who try to follow in the footsteps of prophets are concerned, it is still being demanded of them to produce miracles. And if they don't produce those miracles, then they should not be allowed to run their societies according to Allah's program. Look at those who are placing these demands on the followers of prophets. Did they start? with a 100% completed manual of what their society would look like at the very beginning go back to the history of this country the declaration of independence took place long before the constitutional congress approved a constitution they didn't have a working model to start with so why should we accede to the demand when somebody asks us what's your political system What's your economic system? Does Islam even have a political system? Does Islam have a social system? Does Islam have a legal code that fits into the modern world? Brothers and sisters, why do we have to respond to these questions? Why do we have to spend years in academic institutions coming up with blueprints so that we can satisfy these demands? Brothers and sisters, we need leaders. We don't need people to manufacture blueprints for problems that are not ours. Leaders have the clarity of mind, the clarity of purpose, the clarity of thought to choose a direction. And then they spend their time aligning their societies and their people to that direction. Leaders don't manufacture blueprints. And we should have the mental and the emotional courage that when somebody demands this of us 
at the genesis point or at the building point that we are in building our societies. We should say to them that this is the time for leaders. This is not the time for one person or a few people to satisfy your need for a blueprint, your need for plans or strategies. Once we launch, then the society can put together all the blueprints that it needs to manage its affair. Because the complexity of that task demands a society. No individual or group of individuals, regardless of how smart or how wise they are, can produce a systemic working model for all of society. This is a trial and error affair. It's something that many minds and many hands on one directional course contribute to. And this is what we need to understand. If we choose Allah, then the miracles will follow. But if we demand from Allah that ipso facto he produce an Islamic society full of justice, full of equality, full of peace and security, if we demand that he produce that for us and put it on our laps so that we don't have to struggle and sacrifice for that society, don't expect Allah to follow our demands. أقول قول هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله Keeping these ayat in mind We know that the enemies of Allah And in our world today, that is represented by the alliance between imperialism, Zionism, and this neo-Salafism or Wahhabism. And this second part of the khutbah is typically reserved on this forum to try to help us equate the ayat of Allah with what is going on in our world today. This triangle, which has its points in Washington, Tel Aviv, and Riyadh, is working overtime on multiple fronts. And the chief objective of all of this activity 
is to isolate the Islamic Republic of Iran to overthrow its Islamic leadership by force and to stop the prioritizing of the liberation of the Holy Land and then by extension the liberation of the world. Now as I just said this activity is taking place on multiple fronts. The sectarian war, which was sort of an indirect effort to destabilize all of the area around Islamic Iran through, through various proxy wars, the one in Syria, the one in Yemen, the occupation of Bahrain, and so on and so forth. Even the war in Afghanistan. You can notice that the epicenter of all of this is Islamic Iran. So it appears that the indirect efforts through these proxy wars has basically failed. And so now they're entering the phase of a more direct confrontation through political channels. And the first of these is to try to separate and I don't like to use these terms but in the world that we live in today, we are sort of constrained. The first of these efforts, in this multiple front of efforts, is to try to separate Sunni members of the Islamic movement from any kind of leadership orientation or leadership access to Islamic Iran. And specifically in this case, I mean Hamas and Islamic Jihad. In recent weeks, and of course, you know, the entire program is conceived right here in Washington. And they have their sort of uh, water carriers in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt and the UAE who relay messages to those who have to receive them and you know the water carriers go back and forth. And so with regard to Hamas, there has been a type of shuttle diplomacy that has been going on in the current administration in the White House. And his son-in-law has been making the rounds from Jordan to Arabia to Cairo to the UAE. And the objective of these of his mission is to dangle a whole bunch of carrots in front of Hamas. News has it that Hamas is being offered 15 million dollars a month in food subsidies and in health care and in social services, not to mention more millions for electricity and water every month. On top of that, it is being offered a, a $100 million electricity plant to be built in Rafah on the Egyptian side of the border. And this plant will be dedicated wholly to the needs of the residents of Gaza. 
And what price does Hamas have to pay to receive all of these gifts? They have to completely disarm. They have to allow the corrupt Palestinian authority to rule over all what they expect to be part of the two-state solution of Palestine. And then most importantly, Hamas has to completely divest from Islamic Iran. The second front in this objective is Iraq. Now all of us heard last week that a prominent personality in Iraq was invited to the peninsula and he actually went. He went and had a meeting with these dynastic rulers of Arabia. Of course here we're talking about a Sayyid Muqtada Sadr. It's no coincidence that this meeting took place at a time where Bani Saud and Bani Israel are trying to normalize relations. We have to keep this in mind as we try to understand what exactly was meant by the invitation and by the visit. Not a lot of information is leaking out, so we have to try to put the pieces together for ourselves. And so we are trying to put the pieces together within the context of the multiple front war that's taking place against Islamic Iran. And we ought not to lose sight of this, this notion as we try to understand what's transpiring in our world right now. So as we mentioned, the indirect attempt to destabilize Islamic Iran has basically failed. The sectarian effort to try to create sort of bantustans all around Islamic Iran, that effort has failed. And so now it's a direct political effort to try to take advantage of the various kinds of population that exist in Iraq. Now Iraq is a hodgepodge. There are Arabs there and the Arabs there have tribal and geographical divisions. There are Kurds there and they have ethnic and cultural divisions. There are Sunnis there and they have national and racial divisions. And of course, there are Shiites that are there in Iraq as part of this hodgepodge. And the Shiites have their own divisions, but the major one is between those who support and accede to the leadership of Islamic Iran and those who don't. And so the brain trust here in Washington and Tel Aviv, they want to take advantage of this sort of political difference of opinion between Shiites. And they want to expand that into a rift. 
into a fight, into warfare within the Shiites. And so their desire, and all of these people have been politically approved here in Washington, is to try to focus on those elements inside of Iraq, Shiites, who want an independent Iraq. Meaning they don't want, in their words, an Iranian landlord and they don't want a Saudi landlord. They want Iraq to be ruled by Iraqis. And so they feel that Muqtada al-Sadr is one of these people. Now this is not what I'm saying, I'm just telling you their thinking. And so they feel that by exploiting this sort of inter-Shiai rivalry and this sort of inter-nationalist rivalry that they're going to cause a split between what was basically up until this point sort of a unified camp of Shiites. From the information that has leaked out from this meeting that took place between Sayyid Muqtada al-Sadr and the ruling class in Arabia. Uh, again, much not much has leaked out, but there have been a few leaks, and it said that a Sayyid Muqtada made six or seven demands, and these are as follows. The first is that the Ithna Ashari way of jurisprudence, that madhab ought to be recognized as a legitimate Islamic madhab and that the Wahhabis in Arabia issue a public declaration to that effect. Second, that the burial sites in the Baqir cemetery of Ahlul Bayt ought to be rehabilitated or should be rehabilitated. The eastern province where the majority of the Shiites in Arabia live ought to have more autonomy and their rights ought not to be violated. And all of the economic benefits that accrue to the rest of the citizens of Arabia ought to accrue to them as well. The next demand was that the occupation of Bahrain be brought to an end and that the war in Yemen ought to be brought to an end. And then, and so far as the Shiites in Nigeria, in Pakistan, in India, in Kashmir and Afghanistan are concerned, that they ought no longer to be persecuted. And that in so far as any damage that has taken place to them up to this point, that reparations ought to be given to them. And then insofar as Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon are concerned, there ought to be a policy of non-interference from the Gulf into their internal affairs, especially with regard to Hezbollah and the government of Syria. So these are his six or seven demands. Whether he was there to be honest or true to these demands is, is not known. Whether he was there 
to pursue an independent Iraq, this is not known. But as the events roll out into the future, and as the circumstances change, we will understand why this visit took place. And then finally, and then I'll end with this. This is the season of Hajj. The first of the Hijjah just was a couple of days ago. And as the Hujjaj are making their way to Al-Bayt Al-Haram, there are the after effects of this sectarian contagion and this sectarian war that has been taking place since 9-11. The after effects go all the way from Afghanistan to Mali and all the way from the south of Sudan and Somalia into the Balkans. And as we take a look at the images of the destruction and the refugees leaving their homes, those who are sensitive enough to notice what will strike them whether they look at Afghanistan, or they look at Kashmir, or they look at Iraq, or they look at Syria, or they look at Somalia, what will strike them is that they are Muslim women who are carrying their babies to safety. In many cases, these Muslim women are starving. They have no clothes on their back. They have no money in their pockets. And yet, they are traversing over scores or hundreds of miles by foot. They are getting into dangerous seas, not knowing if they and their children are not going to drown. They are going in and around tanks and armored personnel vehicles. They are trudging their way through landmines. All to just protect their babies. To try to ensure that they have some kind of a secure future. And if any of you have a time to take a look at these images on the internet or in the newspapers, if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes and to your heart, then you are not a human being, much less a Muslim. These are the Hajars of today. If you want to find Hajar, you will not find her doing the sari between As-Safa and Al-Marwa. 
you will find her leaving a bombed out home in search of shelter. You will find her in a boat in perilous waters on her way to shores where she doesn't even speak that language nor of which she has any money to make her living. You will find her walking through the deserts of Africa. You will find her braving the snow in the north part of Turkey in order to find refuge. The word Hajar is from the same triliteral root as the word Muhajireen, as the word Hijrah. Hajar, the wife of Ibrahim, was the grand matron of all of those people that we today know as Al-Muhajireen around Allah's Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And it is this Hajar which is disowned by Makkah, which is disowned by the royal family, which is disowned by the Gulf. And if there is no room for Hajar in Makkah, and if Hajar is not welcomed in Makkah, then this means that Muhammad and Ibrahim are not central to this Ummah. And when Muhammad and Ibrahim are not central to this Ummah, then this Ummah is not central to humanity. And when this Ummah is dancing around on the periphery of the problems of humanity, then we have the kind of world that we have today. اللهم أرنا الحق حقا ورزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا ورزقنا اجتنابه اللهم اغفر للمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب الدعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي 
ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم وإذ جعلنا البيت مثابة للناس وأمنا واتخذوا من مقام إبراهيم مصلى وأحدنا إلى إبراهيم وإسماعيل أن طهر بيتي للطائفين والعاكفين والركع السجود إن الصفا والمروة من شعائر الله فمن حج البيت أو اعتمره فلا جناح عليه ومن تطوع خيرا فإن الله شاكر عليم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أيها الصلاة أيها الفلاة قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله 